You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We looked last week at the first part of Genesis chapter 15, where there's this sort of two-part promise that God has made to Abram and is in the middle of reminding Abram of that and this, this ongoing faith that Abram has in verse 6. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness that, that Abraham, Abram stood firm in his faith in the Lord as God reassured him that the promises that he made to him regarding his offspring were going to come true. And this week we look at the, the God, how God shores up Abram's faith in response to the promise of the land that he will receive and how that is going to come true. Uh, Abram kind of in, in the midst almost of a struggle, uh, and that struggle is not one that, is, uh, that we're strangers to. We, we experience the same uh, kind of struggle, this sort of, uh, and then we talk about this a lot here, and I feel like I talk about it a lot from this pulpit, this struggle between the already and the not yet, uh, where our, our circumstances don't seem to line up with the truth of God's promises to us, and that's, that's very much where Abram is at this point. The circumstances of the promise don't seem to line up with the, with the actual words of the promise, and a lot of what Abram is struggling with, I think, is waiting, like he is struggling on waiting on God to, to bring these things about, uh, and kind of going along with that, oftentimes, the waiting, there's this struggle of, of anxiety and doubt that sort of accompanies that, and, but, and, and we experience these things. We experience the struggle of waiting. We know what it means to kind of live in that tension when we want so badly for things to be one way, but can, we know that God's promises said that they ought to be this way and, and that we look at our lives and they don't necessarily line up. And even in the inside, like it's not just external circumstances, but sort of internal circumstances as well. I live in the light of the promise that I've been set free from my sin and yet I still sin, right? I still struggle with this temptation, and, and God here is helping Abram to sort of make sense of all of those struggles. We need his help to, to make sense of that struggle. Struggle. He does that with Abram in this passage through, these, through the, sort of a deepening and, and intensifying of these promises in a special relationship that we'll look at. But he does that with us too. So let's read uh, Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 7. And he, that is God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid them and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch 
passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to say that uh, last service, I didn't do so good with all the ites names, but this, this, I kind of I nailed it this service. So um, excuse me just a minute. Let me give myself a little back pat there. Well, think about, uh, think about grocery shopping. I know that's what you're thinking about. Um, but since this whole thing sort of started, like grocery shopping has sort of become much more of an adventure than it used to be. And maybe, maybe you think, like, I'm kind of an adventurous person. I think that having a, a slight, you know, tint of danger to everything that I do is, is good and helpful. And it keeps, keeps me, lets me know we're alive, right? So going to the grocery store has kind of become this sort of semi-dangerous thing if you have a, an imagination enough for it. But imagine another change to grocery shopping, uh, if you will, a change that makes no sense and that would never happen. But just imagine, if you will, that you walk into the grocery store and you look at all the food on the shelves there and all of the package labels have been erased. <laughs> and what you are staring at are shelves and shelves of just blank cartons and tin cans with no label just staring back at you. And you're just sort of bewildered and befuddled and no, don't quite know what to make of it. Um, every, bl- every, every product has a blank package to it. And you can't make sense. Like nothing makes sense. You can't make sense of anything on the shelf. And you, you might be able to kind of wing it and go through Kroger if you know your grocery store well enough. You might you know, be able to look at the shape of the box and the aisle it's on and sort of where it is on the shelf. And you might say, okay, that's, that's the Captain Crunch, right? The greatest of all cereals. This is it. I can, I can smell it through the box and because this is where it's usually kept. And so you grab it off the shelf and, you know, Hopefully you get home and open the box and there's your Cap'n Crunch. Uh, but the tin cans would be much more of a challenge, right? Because all you are left with is this blank tin can, except that the grocery store in their wisdom and desire to create lots and lots of new jobs have assigned people to sort of stand there in the aisles and point to the cans that you want after you tell them what you want. And so you say, I, I need a can of Kroger brand red uh, kidney beans and the person points to the can on the shelf, you take it off the shelf, but it, it still, it doesn't make sense. You still can't decode and decipher what it is that you have, have, are, are getting until you actually take it home and open it up because it, it probably is. And let's just say there is an 80% chance that that is actually Kroger brand red chili beans uh, or kidney beans, and you're good to go because this is a competent person that works at the grocery store. But that means there's a 20% chance that it is those nasty little baby corn that they sometimes put in Chinese food, right? So you just don't know. There's just kind of a lack of confidence, and you're just sort of left to sort of struggle in this this environment. Like You trust the employee, but this this way of shopping is very frustrating and and anxiety producing and, and not very efficient. And you just, you wouldn't like it very much, would you? 
God's covenant is kind of like the labels on all of the food at the grocery store. Dale Ralph Davis, who's a commentator, said that covenant is the wrapper that God puts around his promises to help you make sense of them and believe them. That that God knows the struggles of our heart. God knows, he understands that he is intimately aware of what goes on in our hearts and minds. And in covenant, God stoops down to help us in the midst of our struggle. He helps us to get a handle on his promises. God's covenant promises are his way of helping his people make sense of this struggle. So as we look at this text and we look at this passage, let's look at this in in three ways. The first, that, that he helps us make sense of the struggle by being the covenant maker. The second way is that he helps us make sense of the struggle by being the covenant keeper. And the third way that he helps us make sense of the struggle is by uh, paying the covenant cost. So let's look at these three things. God helps us make sense of this struggle, this disconnect between the circumstances of our lives and our hearts and God's promises to us by being the covenant maker. So God starts off in verse seven by reiterating who he is. He identifies himself kind of before Abram has a chance to ask another question. God steps in and says, Abram, I am the Lord. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And I want you to recognize like, there's a biblical formula that, that is going on here in this text. That God uses this same pattern elsewhere uh, in, in these first five books of the Bible, and in, in fact, the Old Testament in, in general, to identify himself to his people. And it's kind of a formulaic identity. Remember that Moses is writing this after all of this has taken place, okay? So we're actually on the other side of that 400 years that God talks about in this passage. Moses is writing this story down for the people post-Exodus so that they will know about God's covenant promises. And the name that God gives Moses in front of the burning bush is the covenant name for himself. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? God says, here's my name. I am Yahweh. And so this covenant name for God is the first way that that God uses to sort of link these two redemptive acts in the the minds of God's people post-Exodus as they read this story. So this name Yahweh, this Lord, anytime you see Lord in sort of all caps, but some of the caps kind of smaller than others, that is the Bible's way of saying in Hebrew, this is the covenant name for God. So he links these two redemptive acts of God for the Exodus people. It's the same Yahweh that saved us from slavery in Egypt that that called Abram out of this land of paganism, that saved him from another sort of paganism, another sort of slavery, the slavery of sin and paganism. In other words, this is the same covenant and the same promise that God made to Abram that he made with us, right? And God, God identifies himself in this act of redemption. In other words, to Abram, he says, I am the Lord your God who called you out of the land of Ur, the Chaldeans, out of your paganism to give you this land to possess. But to the Exodus generation, what does he say? 
I am the Lord your God who called you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Right? This is the same covenant maker. That God is the one who makes the promise. That God identifies himself as the covenant maker before Abram has a chance to really express anything here. In verse 8, Abram expresses something. He says, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram's struggle here is the statement, is that the statement of God's promise doesn't line up with his circumstances. God says, though, my promise to you is true because it is I am. I am the one that is making this promise. I am the covenant maker. That in order to make sense of the struggle, what we need to latch on to is the identity and character and nature of the covenant maker. And again, this is what God offers to Abram, that he, he gives Abram this label, this wrapper for the promise in the form of a covenant. Verses 9 through 11, God gives Abram some instructions. Not many instructions, but he gives him some. And he said, he said to him in verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove three years old, or not a turtle dove three years old, a turtle dove and a pigeon. He says, bring me these, these, these animals. And then Abram asks this question. God says, bring me these animals. But Abram knew what to do with them. No, God didn't tell him to cut them in half and set them one against the other. Abram knew instinctually, instinctually what was happening, what was going on, because God was reaching into Abram's experience and he was pulling out a relationship that Abram knew about. It's the covenant relationship. Abram knew that God's answer to his question was to deepen a relationship with himself, was to make a covenant with him. God's answer to Abram's question, born of his struggle, born of the struggle between the difference of the circumstances and the promise, is to move deeper into relationship with the struggler. God's answer is more of himself for us. I love the children's catechism answer to the question, what is a covenant? Because it just kind of gets to the heart of it. A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. A relationship that God establishes with his struggling people and guarantees by the strength and identity of his character and nature. Guarantees by his I amness. So what is your struggle? Where does, where does life it's like not make sense. Where does, where, does, where does your bumper sticker faith kind of run out? Where does the let go and let God and Jesus is my co-pilot and God said it and I believe it and that settles it. Like where does that stuff just run out for you, right? Where do you need the truth of God's character applied to your heart because you're in a real struggle, Where is your heart overwhelmed? Where is your faith overwhelmed by the crushing circumstances of life? Loneliness, depression, health. 
a marriage that is more conflict and strain than, than partnership and bliss. Or, or a singleness that just sometimes you feel like less of an adult. Or, or a sin pattern that just that floods you with shame over and over again and, let, and, and guilt and, and enslaves you because you keep coming back to it over and over again. Where is the paralysis in the face of, of an unhealthy relationship that you have to yourself, to other people, to the world, to God. Instead of, instead of rejecting Abram for his question and struggle, God moves deeper into relationship and becomes the covenant maker for Father Abram and also for all of his offspring. So he helps us make sense of the struggle by becoming the covenant maker. He also helps us make sense of the struggle by being the covenant keeper. From this point on, Abram is passive. He is out. He is asleep. Verse 12, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Um, I said to the first hour, just, you know, put a pin in that dreadful and great darkness and read your study Bible because I don't really know what that means. Uh, so we're just going to pass on over that one. But here, from here on out, the covenant making God and the covenant keeping God is in the driver's seat. And as Abram rests, the covenant keeper lays out his plan. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And then verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a, there's a promise within a promise here. I don't know if you caught it, but God says in the midst of this bigger picture promise, he makes a smaller promise when he says, no for certain. And that promise within the promise is, this will not be easy. This will not be an easy road. Know for certain that there will be trouble, that there will be suffering. This is the integrity, this is the character, this is the nature of the covenant-keeping God. He doesn't hide this truth from his people. He doesn't hide the problems of, of time and waiting and suffering from his people. The covenant-keeping God is, is faithful to his promises, not apart from suffering, but through suffering. There's this 400 years, these four generations sort of underscores a, a truth that, that I think we're, we're kind of coming to know a little bit better. I know I am, that waiting is suffering. I heard, a, I heard a great sermon from a guy named Brian Habig of Downtown Prez in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, he's a preacher that I love, one of my go-to preachers that I listen to um, on Psalm 13. And in Psalm 13, one through two, David says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
And this, this psalm, and he, and he, the psalmist goes on, David goes on, but the, the psalm is like a, a child sitting in her father's lap and kind of grabbing her father's face and turning his face towards hers and looking him in the eyes and saying, how long, how long will I feel this way? How long will this struggle go on? How long until my circumstances change? And then Brian asked this question as a kind of a point of application that just really, it helped me. He says, what is your how long? What are the thing or the things that you're waiting on? And in your waiting, where do you feel that, that gap between the already and the not yet most keenly? What are the inward struggles that cause you sorrow in your heart all the day? I want you to note, Abram doesn't ask God this question, how long? He says, how will I know that I'll possess it? He doesn't ask how long, but God graciously answers it. But he also throws this in for Abram's sake, verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Abram knows that he can trust God because he doesn't hide the hard stuff. Even as he confirms his loving kindness towards Abram himself. And all the while this is taking place, what is Abram doing? He's resting. <laughs> like as all of this goes along, Abram is resting in safety. So God helps us make sense of the struggle by being the covenant maker. He helps us make sense of the struggle by being the covenant keeper. He helps us make sense of the struggle by paying the covenant cost. We kind of hidden at it a, a little bit earlier, but we're in the middle of something that Abram was familiar with. We are in the middle of a ritual here. That there is a cultural uh, convention that is playing out on the pages of Scripture that Abram instinctively understood, and therefore God didn't need to give him further instructions as to what to do with these animals that he told him to bring. In verse 17, look at this. He said, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of all the ites. Abram knew what was happening because he knew that this ceremony, that what was going on was formalizing something that was very important. And the reason that, that Abram knew what to do with the animals, he knew that to, to take them and cut them in half, put one half of the heifer over here and the other half over here, one half of the goat over here, the other half over here, on down the line. He knew to do this and to cut them and kind of make this sort of path between these two uh, halves of these animals. He knew that the, the two parties involved in the covenant were to walk down the center of these two animals. And what was being communicated to both is the terms of the covenant that, that if, if any one of these two parties should break the terms of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Abram knew that this was what was going on. He knew that there was this symbolic, sim, symbolism going on. 
There's a, there's a good example of this. Don't look it up now, but in Jeremiah 34, there's a good example of this actually playing out. Another way to kind of think about this is, is the faithfulness, the faithfulness of the, the parties involved in this covenant making. On a hill in Pennsylvania on July the 2nd in 1863, there was a brave and doughty seminary graduate. All seminary graduates are, of course, brave. Um, but this one particularly so. He was Lieutenant, U, U, Union Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And he was called to be faithful to his duty to the Union Army. His, his regiment occupied this hill known as Little Round Top. And his job was to cover the extreme left flank of the Union Army at the Battle of Gettysburg. So that if his position were overrun by the enemy, then the enemy would overrun the entire Union Army and fold up the Union left flank. And that could have disastrous consequences, not only for the Battle of Gettysburg itself, but who knows how that would have played out in history. We could have been looking at a very different United States of America on this 4th of July weekend had Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain not been faithful to his duty in this moment in history. His regiment had withstood number, numerous assaults by the Confederates. His regiment was low on ammo. Uh, they were spread thin across the line that they had to cover. They knew that the Confederates were getting ready for a final assault, and that assault would be all that it took to sweep not only their regiment away, but give the enemy a clear line of advance onto the Union left flank. That if they surrendered their position, the rebels would, would more than likely win the day, spelling certain disaster for the battle. As they heard the Confederates advancing up the hill of Little Round Top, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain knew what he had to do. He knew he had to give the order that every infantryman uh, dreads hearing. It was just one word, one word that he shouted, bayonets. And he led a wheeling charge down the hill. And in this charge, he swept away the Confederates in their advance and put them on the run and secured the left flank and saved the day for the Union Army. He was awarded the Medal of Honor. Chamberlain, though, he knew in that moment that he would rather have been destroyed than be unfaithful to his duty. The covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God says in this moment in Scripture that he would rather destroy himself than be unfaithful to his people. Because note, only one party of this covenant passes through these two halves of these animals. Abram is asleep, but only the presence of God symbolized by this flaming pot and the torch passes down the center of these sacrificed animals that he takes, in essence, the curse of the covenant breaking fully upon himself. Even at this moment in covenant history, God says, if I break this covenant, this is what will happen to me. But more gloriously, he says, if you break this covenant, this is what will happen not to you, but to me. Galatians chapter three, verse 13, the first part of that verse, uh, 
says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That God takes on the covenant curses, not only for his side of the covenant, but for ours. And time and time again, God's people have been unfaithful and broken this very covenant that was made on this day. That in our sinning and in our rebellion, in our want of conformity unto and transgression of the law of God, God's people break his covenant. And in his mercy and in his grace, the curse of this covenant breaking falls not upon the covenant breakers, but upon the faithful, just, righteous, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Abram. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain said this, I know in whom all my highest hopes and dearest joys are centered. I know in whom my whole heart can rest so sweetly and so surely. Our hearts can rest in the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, covenant-curse-bearing God. Dale Ralph Davis said, in this, in this moment in the Bible, what we see are the nail-scarred hands of the covenant God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you as your covenant-breaking people. We come before you as a people who, who need uh, a faithful God to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. We need a covenant God who is both just and justifier of his people. Lord, we have that in you. We have that in the Lord Jesus Christ who set this table before us by his own broken body and shed blood, these visible reminders that, that, that what happened to those animals in, in this story actually happened to Jesus. Because of our covenant breaking, the, the curse fell upon him rather than upon us. And so, Lord, as we come to this table this morning, remind us of our need, but also remind us of the beauty of the Savior who meets our needs by offering his own broken body and shed blood as atonement for our sins in our place, by giving and granting to us his righteousness where we have none of our own. Oh, Lord, thank you. Remind us, renew us, and enrich us even as we come before this table this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.